0: Good morning. How are you all doing? Pretty good. I don't know about you, but this is like the best time of the year, right? Not just because it's August and it's like the muggiest time of the year, but we're now on the brink of another NFL season and football, right? And this past week, we've had some of our like local studs put their time in and start their two-a-days in that grueling time of the year when you sweat and do all those things. And actually, the first week of football practice, you don't even touch a football; you're just running and doing conditioning, and those are those times that I don't miss, all right? I love everything about football except two-a-days, and I'm glad that I don't have to do that anymore. And probably for those Redskins fans, this is the favorite time of the year for you too, right? Because this is the only time during the whole season where you end up with a winning record during the preseason, (laughs) am I right? You know, every every chance you get, remind Pastor Ed how badly you guys beat the Patriots, minus Tom Brady, preseason, blah, 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 but forget all that. But probably the best thing about this time right now is that This weekend, we got introduced and came face-to-face with the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, right? And if you don't know, grab yourself a millennial after the service, and they'll catch you up. It's a great cartoon that I watched growing up, and now to see it come to life on the big screen has just been uh, such a great experience. So I just wanted to preface that because I just wanted to let you know how excited I am to be up here. So this week, we continue our series on the book of James, and trying to find ourselves a faith that works. And to give a quick review before we step into the passage this morning, we want to remember that James, the book of James, was probably one of the earliest New Testament writings, written, of course, by Jesus's brother, James, and aimed at Jewish converts to Christianity who were scattered among the Roman Empire, the 12 tribes. And if we look back, we remember chapter one, we were introduced and we're told to remember it's all about choosing our perspective. You can't control everything that happens in life, but you can control your perspective. And then we ended chapter 1 talking about being a doer and not just a hearer of the word. You have to put your faith into action. Chapter 2 told us the importance that uh, we can't play favorites. You can't discriminate against people who are different than you. We have to remember the royal law, love your neighbor as yourself. And of course, at the end of chapter 2, we remembered that uh, faith without any fruit is not really faith. Real faith shows up in the way you live, the way you act, the way you carry out the mission of God. And then chapter three, we saw the, the importance of watching our words, that our words have a tremendous power to hurt or to help people. And so at the end of the day, we have to ask ourselves, are my words or are our words perfect, pure, and profitable for the kingdom? And then of course, last week, we talked about choosing the right kind of wisdom, wisdom from heaven versus Wisdom of the world and how that serves and helps us to develop our faith that works. And so this morning we'll be stepping into the fourth chapter now of James. And if you would, if you're able to, if you would stand with me as we read from the word of God. James chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something but don't get it. You kill and covet But you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. And when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred towards God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think scripture says without reason that the spirit he caused to live in in us envies intensely, but he gives us more grace That is why scripture says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will be near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. Brothers, do not slander one another. Again, Anyone who speaks against his brother or judges him speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you are not keeping it, but sitting in judgment of it. There is only one lawgiver, one judge, the one who is able to save and destroy, but you, who are you to judge your neighbor? May the Lord add his blessing to the reading and the hearing of his word. Amen. You may have a seat. So this morning we want to talk about the joy of humility. What it is we have to do in order to come even before we want to do works of faith for God, we need to come and step forward in the right manner. Two things that we need to know before we can do anything in the name of God. The first of which we have to admit that we are driven by our selfish desires. Now, if you notice James, right, he, this, whole chapter, this whole book, he hasn't been pulling any punches. He's direct. He's straight to the point. And we find that doesn't let up here. Look how he uses this kind of rhetoric and the way that he speaks in the beginning of four, he asks us questions, but gives no time for response. He gives us the answer right after he asks. He says, what causes fights and worlds among you, Don't they come from the desires that battle within you, talks about these things and he answers them for us because he knows. He knows because he's a follower and he knows himself. We need to admit that we have this passion of self-indulgent pleasures. You know, sometimes we think of our desires as being good and sometimes they are. Sometimes our desires are kingdom worthy, kingdom minded in the way that we initially think of them. Sometimes the desires that we have aren't necessarily evil, but it's the way that we pursue them that makes them evil. Actually, the root of this self-indulgent pleasures that's mentioned here in this passage comes from the the root uh, hedonai, Selfish pleasures, sinful, selfish, indulgent pleasures. Hedonai being the root for hedonism. And so we're not talking about just simply desire, but we're talking about self-indulgent and just these crazy ways in which we think we know what we want, but above all, we kind of think we know what we need. If we look at here, the, the word that they use is to obtain. To obtain means to attain for one's own goals and pleasures. I'm not just gathering for the good of the community, but I'm gathering for myself. If we look here, the end of verse 2 talks about you kill and covet, and you cannot have what you want course it's pretty direct and of course he doesn't mean the killing being this literal killing physically but it's a spiritual killing killing maybe the dreams or the hopes of other people so that we can have what we want for ourselves it's contrary to what christ like living is like our selfishness sometimes consumes our hearts so much that there's no room for the holy spirit and jesus to even enter to do any of his work how does that look like for us in the real world For those of us in the workforce, we want our ideas to shine. We want ourselves to be lifted up. We want to climb that ladder. In school, same way. We want to dive into the education and engage in these things that can't engage back. So we study the books and we take the tests and hope that will qualify us and educate us and lift us up, fill us up, fulfill our needs. What does that look like in the home for parents? How do we equip our children? For some of us, it's easy. We want to educate them and teach them all the skills that we feel they need in life. And yet sometimes the spiritual needs that are really important are just the extras. They don't supplant the others. Selfish desires. Let's continue on And then in verses 2 and 3. It says, when we begin to compare, we begin to covet. The crippling effects of coveting. What does that look like? Boy, when you compare, don't you put yourself squarely in your shoes? Compare other people to your standards? Or sometimes you think that their standards are so low that you compare yourself to them and say, Ah, I feel pretty good. I must look pretty good to everybody else. Comparing is unchristlike in its motive in that you lack prayer. When you begin to compare, there's no need to seek a guidance from God, from the Holy Spirit. And it even tells us, James here tells us that even you don't have the things you don't want because you don't pray. But even then, when you do pray, you don't pray with Christ-like intentions. You don't pray the right way. Selfish desires then don't affect just then our prayer lives, but then it radiates, right? It, it bleeds out. And if we can't have the right desires in our prayer lives, then that affects our relationships with God. And then ultimately, it affects the relationships of everybody else that we love. And then from there, if it affects the people we love, then what about the people we don't even love? Those that society calls us to love. You see how this trickle-down effect costs us our relationships with people in the world? Look at verses 4 and 5 here. It talks about an adulterous people, the high cost of friendship with the world. Don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred towards God? Boy, that's pretty strong. But oftentimes we see this in the Bible a lot. Either you're with God or you're not. And when you're not with God, you're friend with the world, and the world being sin, the flesh. Spiritual adultery is different than adultery that we know, of course, right? From person to person, that's pretty vindictive and vengeful. And we don't think of God's jealousy and envy with coveting of us in that way. God wants just complete allegiance Of reliance, he wants the best, our full attention, and it's not because we choose to do it, but it's because he did it first. He gave us his full allegiance when he sent Jesus to us all that he had to die for us. And finally, he talks about pride. God opposes the pride, but gives grace to the humble. You see, pride I think there's two ways to look at sometimes. I think pride the pride that we probably can associate with is probably this elitism this swelling, this vanity, this puffiness that we have for uh, ourselves. If you're a guy, maybe this machismo, right? But there's also another side of pride, and that's the self-deception, where we can fool ourselves into thinking that what we want for ourselves is what God wants for us. That's prideful. It's self-pity. Self-pity is selfishness, because you're thinking, oh, boy, it's all about me, and I need to get myself right before I can get right with God. So what does this all mean? It means that we have a tough time admitting, again, to what we every day guilty of, and that's admission. Admitting that we're selfish, admitting that, that our desires first are never for God. You know, for a professional athlete, that couldn't be more true. Professional athletes, you know, they play, they give their bodies, they sacrifice, and they do well. Uh, they do so well that we pay to watch them play and they enjoy that lifestyle, and they enjoy performing at a high level until it's time to call it quits. You've probably seen it. When an athlete has to give that press conference and tell the world that they have to admit that their playing careers are over. This is a picture of Brett Favre. Contrary to what some of you may think in the room, he is probably one of the greater quarterbacks in NFL history. amassed great amount of numbers, and a lot of times when athletes decide that it's time to hang them up, they do it because, number one, their bodies just can't handle, right? It, you know, being a professional athlete is a full-time job. Sometimes it's uh, maybe the, the, the threat of injury. You know, they're one hit away from career or life-ending injury. And, of course, you want to amass all these great things so that you can enjoy them later. And so they want to make the best choices for their future bodies. And then probably number three is for their family. Being a professional athlete requires you to be away a lot of times, and uh, you know doing a lot of things that you want to do. And now finally, you need to settle down and take care of the family. Brett Favre had probably the toughest time admitting to this because he retired like three times. He retired after playing sixteen years or so with the Green Bay Packers, took him to a championship, and you know amassed a lot of individual awards and, and accolades, and retired, and really didn't admit to himself that he still wanted to play, and so he came back with another team, played a year, the New York Jets, and then retired again, or left the game, so to speak, and then he came back. And not only did he come back, did he not come back a a third time, but when he came back, he came back and played for the arch rival Minnesota Vikings. See, this is a guy that just could not admit to selfish desires; just just couldn't admit to just giving it up, maybe when he should have. What does that look like for us? What do we have to admit to in our selfish pleasures and our desires? Hanging on to things, maybe In the church, maybe sometimes we have roles and jobs that we like and have served in for such a long time but can't give up that position or that role so that somebody else can come and serve. What does that look like in your home? Maybe sometimes after the kids are grown, maybe it's time for role reversal. Maybe it allows another spouse to come to the workforce. What is it? What are those admissions of selfish desires that you need to give up? The first is just to recognize it. James goes on. We're going to jump here. Let's jump to verses 11 and 12 and see how James sees a way that we do this often. And that's in the way that we have to admit that we act above the law and act as judge. The first of which is we have judging faith. We oftentimes take the lead and the role of judging and criticizing. Right. We talk about this comparing when you're comparing, you're judging. You're you're the one that determines whether or not you're good or somebody else is good or you're worthy. The problem with judging faith, is it leads to superiority over individuals. And above all, it leads to superiority over the law itself. When you're the one that sets the standard, sets the bar. Christians say to other people that hurt and damage and make us law makers and law deciders. One is when we tell people the Bible clearly says. How do you think that's received? when we determine and tell people and remind people and beat them over the head with what the Bible says, forgetting that, you know what, they can pick up the Bible themselves and read it. If they wanted to read it, they could find it. What they want to see is you enacting and enabling through the actions of what the Bible says. The second is people say a lot of times we say God will never give you anything or give you more than you can handle. Tell me something I don't know. To be honest, that's a Mother Teresa quote. It's a good quote. But I don't think God appreciates us speaking for him in this case. Right. We should focus on making connections, developing friendships and not telling people these empty words and these empty phrases. Then there's these black and white quantifiers of faith, such as labeling people, believer, unbeliever, backsliding, giving people names and labels. You see, terms like backsliding try to pinpoint the success or the lack of people's faith. It's judging people. People want to be accepted, not analyzed. Next is another one that we hear a lot of times. It's love on. As uh, youth group leaders, as children leaders, we want to love on these kids. Whatever happened to just loving them? You see, to love on implies that maybe we should just show a flash of kindness an actor too, But to love is simpler. It's deeper. It reaches far more than just loving on, but it deals with the relationship of the person, the giving and the receiving of love. It's reciprocal. Finally, the last one is God is in control. He has a plan or God works in mysterious ways. I don't know about you, but if you're going through some trauma or brokenness, that's the last thing you want to hear. People are drawn to the Jesus who sat down next to the woman at the well. That touched the leper, healed the sick, the hurting. The Jesus who cried when Lazarus was dead. Even though he was in control of everything. You may have heard that people say that they like Jesus, but not the church. It's not because they're trying to be difficult, but it's because the Jesus they hear and read about enters into the pain of humanity where we as the church seem to want to Maybe sometimes float above it. So what does that say about us? How do we enact and carry out? You know, this brings up this uh, illustration that I have, that I heard when I was uh, when I was younger. I was gonna say when I was smaller, but you know, let's be honest. I mean, I was never really that small, right? I haven't really been able to scratch my back since 1991. So, I mean, feel my pain for a minute, okay? So I heard this illustration when I was younger. And it talked about a person waking up into heaven and hell. And the person wakes up in hell and seated at this table, this grand feast where there's food everywhere. And people, as they enter their doors, the, this person sees people with, you know, kind of just they look like regular. But on the end of their hands, they have these huge forks on their hands. And the entire time people are, you know, taking food with these forks. And they try to eat, but they can't because the fork is just long enough that it reaches past to their mouths, right? They've got this food, and they can't eat. And people are getting frustrated, right? And they, they yell at each other because they, everyone wants to eat, but they can't. And then the same person wakes up in heaven in front of a great feast, and there's food everywhere, and people walk in, and they look like normal people. But again, on the end of their hands, there are these forks. And they pick up the, the food, and yet these people can eat. Why is that? They still have the same problem. They can't get the food to their mouths. But what do they do? They feed each other. Oftentimes we think of heaven and being with God or being without God as this great chasm where it's beautiful people and white and ugly people in black. Or, you know, we just think of these demonic things. And oftentimes it's just the smallest things. It's the intentions that are different. The intentions to get to the intentions, you got to admit to them. So we're talking about now admitting but now that how do we move away from that towards god the only way to do that is then to submit a lot of times we want to submit to god but forget to admit first i mean it's the abcs of christianity we teach our kids right admit believe and, con- and confess we forget about the admit or we think the admit is a one-time thing we forget that it's a daily thing that we have to do so submitting ourselves to god will unite us with him we have to understand That to be aligned under God's authority is to submit to God while resisting the devil. We find that in verse 7. What I want us to understand this morning is that this submission is an active submission. Okay? Because I know sometimes we think that's that humble submission is this getting on our knees, raising our hands to God and saying, God, take it from me. Take my desires, take them from me. Active submission is not on our knees. Humility is not on our knees, it's on our feet, doing ridding ourselves, placing God's priorities, desires above ours. It's this literal, I mean, I'm talking, our desires are here because a lot of us think that we have to rid ourselves of our selfish desires before we can admit and submit to God's plan, but that's never going to happen. You have to recognize and admit that they're going to be there, but you have to physically sometimes, almost physically, and we talk about spiritual formation, so our Our spirits have this form that we can almost tangibly feel. Place our admissions of of self-desires down here so we can submit to God's plan up here. If we look at verse 7, submit yourselves then to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. See, the word resist in this talks about withstanding, standing ground, fighting your selfish desires. Kingdom submission means literally placing God's desires above ours. And worldly submission means both active, denying, denying and withholding ourselves from the temptation. So we have to submit to God's will and stay out of God's way. Let me tell you what submission to God's plan isn't. Submission to God's plan isn't submitting your requests to God and him blessing it. You understand that? Submission to God's plan isn't submitting. Let me make a suggestion, God, right? And a lot of times we see that in the church. I mean, I volunteer, so I should be able to say what I do in the church. Surely because it's my time. No, it's not. It's God's time. He's giving you stewardship over his resources, over the things that he's created. So his will only requires our willingness. If we are to make informed choices, we need the word of God. We need the Holy Spirit to guide us because we know left to our own devices. We choose wrong every time. Earthly friends we talk about here, verse seven and eight. Earthly friends give us nothing. Spiritual friendship is what we want. That's what determines eternal destiny. Choosing the world means hating God. Some of us that have spouses or married, we know that, right? Can you imagine if a spouse went to somebody else for comfort and for guidance? That's how God is. He wants full attention. He wants you to choose him every day. So then verse 8 talks about spiritual cleansing. And uh, Alex mentioned this earlier. Drawing near to God and he'll draw near to us. See, close doesn't count. And I'll say this because of this. The yearning we talk about here is to pursue with love. God knows that our relationship with him is the best for us and his pursuit is relentless. Even after Adam fell and Eve, God was there to find them, to pursue them. Right. And so we know that a close relationship with God is only up to us. Well, it's up to us to respond to his initiation. And the the term near here in this context isn't like near close. That's why I say close doesn't count. Near means to join together to be in total communion with Jesus. We, know we talked about the last time I was up here that nearness is what is described in the, the basis of sin, hamartia, right? Sin just means not hitting the mark. So you can be totally like in the direction and you can slightly miss this way or this way, doesn't matter. Missing the mark is what sin is. And so when we get close to God, we don't want to get near close, like sin close. We want to get in total direct line Direct relationship with Jesus. That's what this means. And so, in order to do that, we need to be not double minded. We can't serve both, right? We have to clean our hands and clean our hearts. Now, oftentimes, we as Christians talk about being the hands and feet of Jesus Christ. Well, what happens when our hands are dirty? What do we do? You see, we talk about our eyes being the windows to our hearts. Well, what are our hands? See, when James tells us to wash our hands, he follows that up with saying, wash our hearts. The hands are the outward, but the heart's the inner. You have to clean that. You see, there's two submissions. Okay? Let's not lie to ourselves. There's a a bad submission to our selfish desires, and there's a good submission to God. And what James is saying is that you can't do both. Because a lot of us think that we can do what we want until a certain point, and then God will take the rest. So we have to remember that total submission means submission to God, Otherwise, we'll be serving two masters, and we know that doesn't work. And so, finally, if we look at uh, verse nine, it says, "To grieve, mourn, and wail; change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom." I mean, this has been pretty good up to this point, I think, and that's why I think it's telling us to take the road not taken. Can we get that that image up? I don't. Know, can you see the image? This worn-out road down to the left, and this kind of just starting to make a road to the right. And I know what you're thinking. That's not Pastor Ed, all right? I don't want you thinking that all older men with white hair, okay, is Ed in pictures, okay? But it shows us of this road, but not not literally, I'll say that, but figuratively because Ed is our trailblazer. He's taking us to a place that we haven't been before, in all honesty. Amen, Ed? Thank you. <laughs> so he's taking us on this path not taken before, right? And it's a path that James is calling us to. Because you see this sudden change here in the tone because he's talking about come near to God, submit yourselves, admit to yourself desires. But he says, then grieve, mourn and wail. What are we to grieve and mourn and wail about? Well, it's to submit, to give up to this life of humility. You see, sin can keep even a Christian from fellowship with God. It can keep us from joy, from blessing, all these things. We know what sin can do. Right. So we know that it's not a laughing matter. What James is calling us to do is to live a life of humility which is a life that involves us being invited into people's lives that are broken, unstable, dirty, ugly, reflective of our our own lives. We're allowed oftentimes and invited into this. It's a long road to navigate, to stay straight, to not veer from. That's what James is telling us to be mourning over, to grieve over. So it brings us to this then. The life of humility, because sometimes the way up is the way down. I want to share with you the dictionary, a textbook term of humility. The state or quality of being humble, freedom from pride and arrogance, lowliness of mind, a modest estimate of one's own worth, a sense of one's own unworthiness through imperfection and sinfulness, self-abasement, humbleness. That's pretty good. But, Kevin, we're talking about a faith that works. Give me something I can work with. All right, let's work with this definition. Humility, not thinking less of ourselves, but thinking of ourselves less. What does that mean, boy? It means this. The greatest commandment says to love God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and to love others as you love yourself. Love others as you love yourself. Jesus knows us so well. He tells us, he tells us that we love ourselves. Isn't that true? Think about what you do for yourself. You go to the gym, take care of your body. When you go to the store, you don't pick the bruised fruit. You pick the good fruit. You eat well. You lavish yourself. You do all these things well. And Jesus is saying, that's okay. I know that you're going to do that for yourself. But but, but but, do that for God first. And then do it for others. Because I know you do it for yourself. So you understand the, the importance of the placement of what we do. He's not telling us to diminish anything. As a matter of fact, he wants us to celebrate and to acknowledge and to use the gifts that he gives us. But he says to not give people the leftovers like we always do, but give them the very best that we would do for ourselves to give it to them first. That's why I talk about the joy of humility. Jesus first, others second, and yourself last. Still not getting it? Okay. Well, let's look at this model here of downward mobility. I think this is what can help us get there. So uh, a Dutch-born Catholic priest. So Jan and Ed, you would appreciate this, right? Uh, Wrote this book called The Selfless Way of Christ. He's an author, a pastor, and he contrasts the cultural push for upward mobility with Christ's example of downward mobility. See, Nowin describes the lure of this upward mobility in our society. Okay, and this is what he says. We are taught to conceive of development in terms of an ongoing increase in human potential. Growing up means becoming healthier, stronger, more intelligent, more mature, even more productive. Consequently, we hide behind those who do not affirm this myth of progress, such as the elderly, prisoners, those with mental disabilities, the marginalized, women and children. In our society, we consider the upward move, the obvious one, while treating the poor cases who cannot keep up as sad misfits, people who have been deviated from the normal line of progress. And i said, right? This is us. This is how we move. In contrast to the upward progress, though, now one talks about the downward. Right. We have to work. I mean, work to go down. The disciple is the one who follows Jesus on this path into the new life. OK, it's shocking. It's unsettling. This is something that we can understand. Until you actually get to know God. But there's three temptations of upward mobility. The first is the temptation to be relevant. I mean, couldn't that be more true now? We live in the revolution of selfies, social media, to be relevant, caught up to date. Second temptation is to be spectacular. Those of the Leave it to Beaver, right, keeping up with the Joneses. We want to be spectacular. We want to get everything that everybody else has. Finally, the last temptation is the temptation to be powerful. See, these are all attempts to justify our worth and existence. With others, downward mobility introduces compassion as a movement. It's not just a word that we use, but compassion as a movement toward the poor, the oppressed, the ugly. Downward mobility is the compassion to call and become children, disciples of a different kingdom. It's a celebration of weakness in the spirit. It's that that, that admission we talked about. It's authentic compassion and it's God's ongoing work to reconcile, to bring us back, to restore us to empty us out for us to admit the only requirement of downward mobility is that I perceive what God is compassionately doing and I'm willing to enter into it. So now we're just talking about acts of charity, but we're talking about acts of mobility towards the great commission, fulfilling what Jesus commanded us. I want to finish this time together with a story that I think would probably best sum up what we've been talking about this morning. Cause we've been talking about admitting to our selfish desires, and admitting that we put ourselves first. Then submitting and putting God first. And then finally, living a life of humility means putting ourselves last. I want to share a story with you. And if you heard it before, I ask that you don't spoil it. And it's a story about just a regular Sunday evening. After a few of the usual Sunday evening hymns, the church's pastor slowly stood up, walked over to the pulpit and before he gave his sermon for the evening he briefly introduced a guest minister who was in the service that evening. In the introduction the pastor told the congregation that this guest minister was one of his dearest childhood friends and that he wanted to uh, give him a few moments to greet the church and share whatever he felt would be appropriate for the service. So with that an elderly man stepped up to the pulpit and began to speak. A father, his son and a friend of his son We're sailing off the Pacific coast, he began, when a fast approaching storm blocked any attempt to get back to the shore. You see, the waves were so high that even though the father was an experienced sailor, he could not keep the boat upright, and the three were swept into the ocean as the boat capsized. So the old man hesitated for just a moment, making eye contact during the service Two teenagers who were the first time in the service beginning to listen. They looked somewhat interested in the story. So the minister continued. So the father, grabbing a rescue line, had to make the most excruciating decision of his life. To which boy would he throw the other end of the lifeline? He only had seconds to make the decision. But the father knew that his son was a Christian, but he also knew that the son's friend was not. The agony of this decision cannot be matched by the torrent of the waves. So as the father yelled out, I love you, son, he threw out the line to the son's friend. By the time the father had pulled the friend back into the boat, his son had disappeared beneath the raging swells into the black of the night. His body never found. Now by this time in the service, the two two teenagers were sitting up straight in the pew, eagerly waiting for the next words to come out of the minister's mouth. The father, he continued, knew his son would step into eternity with Jesus, but could not bear the thought of his son His friend not stepping into that same eternity. Therefore, he sacrificed his son to save his son's friend. How great is the love of God that he should do the same for us. Our Heavenly Father sacrificed his only son that we could be saved. And so I urge you to accept his offer to rescue and take a hold of the lifeline He is throwing out to you today. And with that, the old man turned and sat back down in his chair, silent for the rest of the service. So the pastor came up gave his sermon for the evening, and gave an invitation at the end. However, no one responded. So the service ended. And within minutes after the service ended, the two teenagers were at the old man's side. That was a nice story, said one of the teens. But, you know, I don't think it's very realistic for a father to give up his only son's life in hopes that the other boy would become a Christian. That's crazy. So the old man said, well, you've got a point there. And he took a pause, and he glanced down at his worn old Bible. And he looked back up with a big smile across his narrow face. And he said, it sure isn't realistic, is it? But I'm standing here today to tell you that the story gives me a glimpse of what it must have been like for God to give up his son for me. You see, I was that father, and your pastor was my son's friend. Every time I, I read that story, I share that story, I can't help but get moved But that story is not even real. And it touches me. What does that say about your story? What are you admitting to? What selfish desires are you admitting to so that others may serve at the table, may live? We would talk about submitting, yet we don't submit because we can't admit. How many times at work have you walked by the same person in the hallway for years and not said anything? How many times in the hallways at school have you seen somebody that was new or you have gone to school with for years and never even knew their name? The judgment we have is deciding whether or not people get to learn or hear about Jesus. Posture and humility means speaking second, listening first. It's not a humility on our knees, but on our feet. If we put Jesus first, others second, ourselves last, we can truly understand the joy of humility. And if we are prepared to admit to our selfish desires and willing to submit to God, then we can begin to live with a faith that works. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time together this morning and for the joy in knowing that if we admit not just to sin, but admit to our own selfish, greedy desires, self-servingness, and for just the ways that we put ourselves before you, the reassurance that you'll be there not to respond, but you'll be there waiting, waiting to answer our pleas and our requests for your presence and care and guidance. And so this morning we come now humble, really humble, to put you first in our lives so that we may live and help others to come to know the kingdom, come to know you. Guide us and direct us as we pray for all things in Christ's name. Amen.